As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and I am ready to answer some listener questions, or at least ask them, and then have other people answer them. We've got eight or so questions lined up. Here with me to answer them, uh, up first, is a man who is dressed to show his new and undying loyalty. <laughs> it's Mr. Graham Ruffin. Graham, thank you for your support. <laughs> uh, thank you, Taylor Rockwell. I am not ready for that curse to be put up upon me. So for anyone who, or, or uh, I was going to say everyone, for anyone who can't see me, everyone. Yeah, everyone who on this medium can't can't see me, uh, I am wearing a Manchester United uh, Adidas original zippy. I bought it in London. Uh, there was uh, like a whole load of 90s stuff. And as a kid of the 90s, I'm not quite as 90s as Mr. Ryan Bailey, but nonetheless, Manchester United, quite iconic part of that decade. So yeah, I bought it. But please, please do not put that curse on me, Taylor Rockwell. Uh, I, I will not. I, I, I promise you. But I appreciate the support all the same. I'm assuming it, it was for uh, for me today. Thank you for that, Graham. Uh, always <laughs> nice to have uh, loyalty starting the week. Uh, joining us is a man who always gives full effort in podcast training. It's Joe uh, Lowry. Uh, Hi, Joe. <laughs> Taylor, I see what you did there. Uh-oh. And we should talk about this old Giorana thing in just a second. But first, much more importantly, did Graham say the word zippy? He did. Okay. He did, because I was ready for him to say training top, so then I could transition to how you give your best effort oh, in training. Tough. And instead, is, I spent a good 10 seconds being distracted by him. Is this zippy. another fizzy juice, diluting juice situation? This is fizzy 100% juice. a zippy. It's got zip. You can hear it. Listen. Oh, yeah. All right. What do you call a zippy. It? I, quarter zip? Is it a quarter zip, Graham? Like, does it no, zip down so, just so like your collarbone? All right, then it's just no, no, a jacket. Yeah, it's just a jacket is what I would call it. But I, I love that you called it. As, I'm not trying to shame you for that, Graham. That's just one that I've never heard before. And that <laughs> seems genuinely quite adorable. And I will be adopting it from this point forward. I'm a really big fan of of like words that like really do a good job of describing the thing while yeah. also being the name of the thing. I love in Turkish, Bilgi Sayar is the word for computer, which I believe literally translates to knowledge counter, which I guess is what a computer is. <laughs> and I love the idea of what do you call a soft drink? What do you call a soda? We call it fizzy juice because it's fizzy and it's, I guess, juice. Graham, is that what you all think of as juice? 
See, until these conversations, I actually mm-hmm. thought American um, Americans described things in a more literal way. Like the time mm-hmm. I went to Walgreens or whatever, and um, when I was on holiday with my uh, daughter, and we were looking for like a brand of like what we would call like nappy cream, and the person we asked them where to find it, and they went, "Oh, you mean the butt paste?" And the, like <laughs> that was just such a literal. I'd never heard that before. Um, until then, so you're making me reconsider some things here, Taylor Rockwell. Maybe the Scots are the, are actually the, the the literal breed amongst us. Where where were you shopping again? Uh, Florida. That makes yeah, see, that's it. your problem. That's <laughs> your problem right there. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I would have con- gone for that terminology, but I apologize for my American brethren causing you consternation. Uh, Joe, I should give you credit uh, because in discussing the situation with Gio Reyna and Greg Berhalter and the USMNT uh, during the World Cup, we're going to talk about that one before we get to the questions. Um, you said... We can't really speculate. We don't really know what the situation is, what's going on. It seems like there could be an injury. Maybe there's something else. But what is for sure is that it will come out after the World Cup. We will get details eventually. It did not take long. Eventually came very, very quickly uh, as we learned Greg Berhalter giving some remarks and was meant to be a very off-the-record speech, uh, presentation, lecture, whatever it may have been. To a room full of people, off the record to (laughs) numerous people in a public forum. Not sure about that one, but basically discussing how the gist of it being there was uh, an issue with the squad in the last World Cup, the most recent World Cup, that there was a player who was nearly sent home. Uh, for a couple different reasons. Uh, the Athletic has now elucidated some of those reasons, but that the player had to be talked to by senior players, how uh, senior staff were saying they should just send him home, the player that apologized to the team. The team, it sounds like from Burhalter's view, didn't really accept that apology right away, that like the player had to prove himself. Sounds like he ended up doing so. Uh, there was not a specific name attached to that one, but it was pretty clearly uh, one player who has since been revealed by other reporting to be Gio Reyna. Uh, Joe, this was sort of, I guess, what we were expecting to come out. I am still pretty surprised by it, still sort of unclear what exactly has happened because we haven't gotten much in the way of a story from Gio Reyna. His agent came out and basically said, it didn't go well, the World Cup, but we're we're on to like the next thing. We don't really want to focus on this one too much. Uh, where were your thoughts when this story came out? Not fully surprised based off of what we know about Mm -hmm. Gio Reyna. And and you could sort of add some of the pieces to this puzzle together and start to build the puzzle even without knowing what the picture was going to be. Now we know it is a giant puzzle of Gio Reyna's face, but throughout Mm -hmm. the World Cup, there was never any soccer reasons to leave Gio Reyna on the bench for as much as he was on the bench in this tournament. The thing, and I I do think this is still true, Gio Reyna also didn't look fit. He didn't look 100% fit. Baralther talked about, I, I believe this had been confirmed other places as well, that Burhalter, uh, that, that Gio Reyna, excuse me, had been dealing with a little tightness in the, the scrimmage that they had before the competition started and, and was not 100%. So I think that is still an accurate part of this story. But the other fact is that, uh, yeah, apparently Gio Reyna just wasn't really trying in training. So this is a, a quote from the Athletic article that, that you referenced earlier, Taylor. Reyna showed an alarming lack of effort in training ahead of the U.S.'s opening match of the tournament against Wales. The lack of effort was so pronounced that it was unclear whether Reyna was protecting against an injury or just frustrated that he was not set to be a starter against Wales. So it's disappointing. That's my thought on this. It's disappointing that the U.S. couldn't be a wholly united group, although it does still seem like the locker room was very, very strong throughout this process, which I do think is a credit to the players themselves and to the the structure around those players. But it's disappointing that, that Gio Reyna yeah. couldn't, uh, couldn't fully get on board with this team as the most talented player, I think, by a pretty wide margin to help this team accomplish a goal that is going to be special for all of these players. So 
there, I, I've seen, and this is the, the curse of Twitter, right? I've seen a lot of people that are trying to flame Greg Berhalter for this and say that this is somehow his fault. And, and Graham, I, I do think you have to weigh the risks of, of saying these things in public, whether or not the rules of journalism were followed here. And it seems pretty clearly that they were not by that initial uh, forum, Taylor, that you referenced earlier, not by The Athletic. I think they, they did an excellent job with this story. You know, there, there's just no way to spin this where Gio Reyna isn't the one that looks bad. He's a yeah. 20-year-old kid. He made a huge mistake in this competition. And now looking forward, we're going to see how that impacts his career at the club level and at the national team level. Yeah, I don't think it reflects well on, on Gio Reyna at all. He's he's clearly very talented and has a big future ahead of him. But the key thing about this story is that his teammates confronted him. So it's not even, you can't even really paint it as a, as a case of a manager having a personal issue with just one player. The story that was reported by uh, Paul and Sam makes clear that he was he was confronted by his teammates who also felt that his his lack of effort in that scrimmage and then in subsequent d- days of training wasn't wasn't good enough um and you know i i, I don't know Gio Reyna. i have never spoken to him i'm only going off what's being reported and also i guess his body language and and what we see from him on the pitch but if there is any kind of sense of entitlement there he he needs to get rid of that and quickly he he's 20 years old He's barely played this past year and he's coming into a team that he, or he was coming into a team in this World Cup that had performed w- well without him. He might be the most talented player on that, on that roster, but it, it was a, it was a team that was already set ahead of that tournament. And so the onus was on him to force his way up. Berhalter owed him, owed him nothing in, in that camp. So yeah, I'm, I'm reluctant to kind of see this story through the prism of Team Berhalter and Team Reyna. That's a little yeah. bit reductive. There's always, other factors that go into stories like this, but I don't really see, besides maybe a bit of naivety from Berhalter in talking to this, this uh, I don't even know what, what you would call it, a summit, a corporate mm-hmm. summit or whatever it was, maybe slightly naive. I, I don't think, he, uh, that's basically my only gripe with how he's handled this. It's all in kind of Giorena as far as I see it. Yeah, and there has been uh, anonymous sourcing in that article, which many have pointed out, uh, me like c- could mean something. It could mean nothing. I do feel like some of the uh, anonymous sources were uh, players. I get that impression. I also get the impression that maybe uh, either some of the coaching staff or Burhalter himself may have been involved in some of these conversations. Just because little things like that quote that Joe read, uh, it was unclear whether Reyna was protecting against an injury or just frustrated that he was not uh, set to be a starter. When Greg Berhalter then came out and said, yeah, you know, we're not like he got some fitness issues. We're not quite sure he's not fully ready to go. I can then see how that's not technically a lie because they're and 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 so I feel like the, the inclusion of that quote to me shows you, I think, a little bit of what the spin was, how they were attempting to handle this in the moment, because they didn't want to say, yeah, he's got a really bad attitude. They didn't want to throw him under the bus deliberately in that World Cup. But I also think. They didn't want to upset the the harmony of the squad. I think even if he were a frustrating player for some of the teammates, anytime you're kicking a player out, unless that player is just so like like villainous, cartoonishly evil, uh, I I don't think that that is going to end up helping the team. I think it's just going to create confusion and and maybe some feelings of uncertainty. So I, I think... What this feels like to me is trying to manage a bunch of different egos. And in this case, a 20-year-old who feels like he should have been more involved, who I think desperately wanted to be involved. And I can understand that disappointment. But I could also understand why Greg Berhalter wouldn't want to include a player if he didn't feel like he was fully functioning within the team 
dynamic and the and the team sort of unity and and that is where it feels to be uh it will be fascinating if Burhalter is uh brought back if his contract is renewed how he handles this because Gio Reyna doesn't feel like a player that you can just say bye-bye to if you're going to be around for the next four years so it's a relationship that I think they're probably going to have to mend privately and then talk about a lot I would point to the issue with Weston McKinney during World Cup qualifying though when he breaks COVID protocol and gets caught, uh, is sent home. It is a talking point for, I guess, like for the rest of that sort of cycle, uh, that sort of break. And then the next break, there's some questions about it. But for the most part, we move on from it. Maybe it's going to be a little bit different here because I think some of the details remain unknown and are basically sort of scandalous, sort of drama. And I think people get attracted to drama. So I'm guessing we'll still hear more about this story as it develops, as time goes on. But I also expect... Uh, regardless of who is in charge, Gio Reyna will be back with the U.S. national yeah. team. I can't see a player of his caliber being left out because he was really frustrated at a World Cup when he wanted to play a role. I think that's just managing professional athletes. So to me, it sounds like it was handled about as well as it could have been, uh, and I hope it gets fully resolved in the near future. One of the most interesting things about this story has been going back and looking at things that happened during the World Cup mm-hmm. now that we have this knowledge. So... I think we were maybe discussing this either in the Slack or maybe it was people on Twitter, but the video of the US arriving back at the hotel. Yeah, that's been a after big one the for Iran, me. Yeah. After the Iran game. And obviously, you know, you've got Pulisic on his phone and everyone's kind of dancing and, you know, high fives and everything like that. And Gio Reyna has his headphones on and not a smile on his face at all. And is just walking through the pack, clearly just wants to get through to his hotel room. So now you see that in, 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 in a slightly different light. And then the other thing that I, I think really doesn't reflect well in Gio Reyna is that you kind of reference it Taylor is that that quote from Berhalter after the Wales game where he is quite clearly trying to protect Gio mm-hmm. Reyna by saying yeah he's got a bit of an injury we weren't ready to to put him in and Gio Reyna throws that back in Berhalter's face by basically saying no I was ready to go like that 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 to me I can kind yeah. of understand look I'm not in that camp but just that little moment in itself I can understand why Berhalter and the coaching staff were pretty close to sending Gio Reyna home because they they had his best interests at heart there and he threw mm-hmm. it back at them uh, an issue that we didn't really discuss at all at the time that I, I want to bring up now is the Eric Winalda interview and quotes. I will let you all sit back. I will I will take this one because it has the potential to be awkward. Uh but <laughs> we we didn't really talk about it because it felt like a a very hazy story, a very murky story, and it didn't feel entirely believable when it came out. There weren't any other reports saying that the squad was in disarray, that Giorena had been told to lie. Those are some of the accusations that were included in there. Now, with a little bit more context, I think there was more truth to what Eric Winato was saying, but I think it was coming from a very specific lens. Because if you see it as Greg Berhalter having sat down with Gio Reyna and said, like, look, man, you weren't training that hard. You weren't trying that hard and that friendly. Uh, We've got other players who are working so hard. You've got to check yourself a little bit. You've got to find your like find your way into this team. Uh, I'm also and then like maybe it is a little bit of fitness. So we're gonna not include you here. I'm gonna say it's about fitness. And then for Gio Reyna to come out and say, "Nope, I was 100 fit and ready to go." I, I see where from his perspective, Gio Reyna's, you could think, "Well, no, he told me I was injured and I'm not injured." And if you're his father, Claudio Reyna, I, I can see how the the story is. My kid is being ostracized or not being included he's a very good player and and i think 
I can then understand how that story becomes what it is to Eric Winalda. But when you hear that he was nearly sent home and there were conversations about that, I can then see how that story went away really, really quickly. Because I think if you're only getting one side, that side might have some truth, but it doesn't have all the truth. And usually the truth is in the middle. Uh, and so I think when maybe more information comes out, there's more understanding of the situation. I feel like that's when that story goes away because there's the threat of Gio Reyna being sent home because he still isn't sort of... Uh, towing the line, he isn't still functioning as part of the team. And so even there, I think there's more clarity to what was going on. Maybe that's me sort of grasping at straws. Maybe that's reading like things that aren't there. Uh, but, but that is sort of my understanding is basically, I think it was a lot of people saying a lot of things and not really communicating all that well, not really listening. And it led to a chaotic situation that I think was genuinely resolved because otherwise I don't think he plays uh, Reina that second half against the Dutch. He comes in at halftime and that to me, unless Greg Berhalter was like at the point where he was just like, you know what kid? Fine. I'll put you in there. And like, then we'll see that doesn't feel like a very smart thing to do when you're trying to get back into a game in a world cup knockout round to me, that felt like, okay, he's been working harder. He's back in the team. The players like him or like him enough that I feel like I can bring him in and we can see what he does. So I do sort of think that the situation was, as resolved as it could be in the moment, but still, still feels like there's a little bit of bad blood, a little bit of frustration with the way things played out. And I think now we're, we're hearing some of that from anonymous sources. We'll see if we ever get any clarity on who those sources are. Uh, but that is a long-winded rambling uh, point for me. Uh, anything else on this one from either of you? Man, we talk about soccer wanting to be a bigger sport in America. Yeah. Drama is how you get there, ladies and gentlemen. This is I mean, obviously not an ideal situation, but... I texted you, Taylor, this, I think, after you texted me about this whole Gia Reyna thing. You know, they're, they're giving us stuff to talk about, and yep. I, I got to respect it. They're keeping us busy. I'm here for it. Uh, unrelated to that, we had a podcast friendly against Extra Time. Uh, Ryan, we feel like, maybe picked up an injury in that one. Maybe, yeah. maybe he could have uh, podcasted a little bit harder. So we're, we're sitting him out. We've got Jordan Morris <laughs> on standby if we need someone to jump in for these listener questions. We need, we need Jordan Morris, Taylor, to beat Extra Time. I think we might need Jordan. <laughs> Although, Taylor can do a pretty darn good professional soccer player impression in a five-a-side. I've seen Taylor play soccer, and he's, he's quite good. The other thing I'll say is... You know, we took a vote on Ryan. Uh, obviously, with there being three of us, it, mm-hmm. it did not maybe come out in his favor, unlike in the Gio Arena situation, if that's even true. The Chili's, I think, had gotten to be a bit too much for him. The grief yeah. of them taking away the honey crispers, 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 honey chicken chipotle crispers. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Ryan, we're, we're really hopeful to get you back involved soon, but just this, this World Cup was not that time. Yeah, I, I was trying to give him some cover. Ryan has actually handcuffed himself to the entrance of a Chili's and is refusing <laughs> to leave until that's put back on menu. Ryan, we're with you, sort of. I don't really care about the honey chicken chicken and honey crispers, but uh, I, I appreciate that he does. I appreciate that we had many people send us some questions uh, via the Lister Question uh, portal on the website, but then also via Twitter. We've got a bunch to get through. Uh, we've done a good amount of introing. Let's do some answering. First question from Nick. Graham, I'm coming to you for this one. One way too early, very spe- specific prediction for the 2026 World Cup could be about the USMNT uh, expansion. Looking forward to having it at home. Any Anything you want. Okay, so obviously this one is quite far off, so I'm not sure I can go down the kind of statistical route of predicting individual matches or even the whole tournament. But I will take a, a slightly broader look at the 2026 World Cup. So we finally got a calf country making the semi-finals of a World Cup in 2022. And I think we'll have a CONCACAF country making the final four for the first time since Ooh. the USA did it in 1930 
in 2026. Uh, 1930 World Cup, by the way, I went back and looked at that tournament. Very different to what the tournament is now. I think there's something like 10 teams. It's a straight knockout. It's all invitational. So I'm not trying to minimize what the US did in 1930. No, you can. Um, it's fine. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Joe, for permission. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't have a lot to base that on because, tw- as I say, 2026 is a long way off. But I think this US group of players will get stronger. Mexico, I think, will be stronger. I think they're going to fully transition to into a new, younger generation for that tournament. And Canada, with the, with their team, I think, aren't going away anytime soon either. Mexico at the Azteca is going to be such a a, a difficult challenge for for any opponent. Um, and and equally, the USA are are very strong at home. That's basically what qualified them for this World Cup. Um, you'll have three home teams at a World Cup for the first time ever. One of them is going to use that home advantage to to make a run. Just when I'm saying that, when when I say Mexico at the Azteca, the Azteca is one of the stadiums, right? I, I'm not sure I've seen. I would assume it is. Yeah, I would assume. Yeah, so. it has to be. Just because obviously the Azteca is like crumbling a little bit these days, so I, I wondered maybe if FIFA had overlooked it. But yeah, you can't have a World Cup co-hosted by Mexico and not play at the Azteca. So that's going to be a pretty daunting <laughs> challenge for 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 any team. So yeah, I think between one of the three. You would assume gimmies in terms of CONCACAF qualifiers, Canada, US, and Mexico, one of them will reach the semifinals. Graham, I think if there's one thing FIFA has shown, it's that they're not particularly concerned about stadia, how those stadia come to be, how those stadiums yeah. are constructed. So I don't know if the Azteca will be too big of an issue for them. Uh, I, I would love for that to be the case. I also think th- that's part of the reason why it's speculated that the final will be in Dallas. Maybe Mexico make that final and then the entire stadium is full of L3 fans. You never know. You never know. Uh, Joe, uh, I, since Graham has gone that way, what have you got for us by so, means of a specific prediction? I went a little narrower. It's not much more specific than Graham's because it is hard. To, to, to project this far out but I have I have two so the first one is I think the MMA midfield will start every game for the United States they'll be in their prime still at that point I know there's a lot of time about three and a half years between that World Cup and the one that that has just finished for the United States but I think those players are still going to be the first two number eights on the depth chart and, and, and Tyler Adams the first number six on the depth chart we talked about the next generation coming through and, and whether you know this is a golden generation or, or not I think there is talent coming through. I'm just not sure there's talent at the level of Musa, McKinney, and Adams coming through in central midfield. I would love to be wrong about that because that means only good things for this program moving forward. But I, I do think the safe bet is on that MMA midfield still being the first choice central group. So that's that's one of the things. The other is I think Josh Sargent will be the starting number nine and will score at least two goals in that tournament. Taylor, I'm hopping back on the Josh Sargent bandwagon with you that, that you were banging on and, and, and that you were hopping on before the World Cup had started and even dating back much earlier than that. I think Sargent is still the most talented number nine that the U.S. has in their pool. And he is on the rebound right now, both with club and country. I'm optimistic. I think he's 22 at the moment. I'm optimistic that by the time 2026 rolls around, he'll be even more established. He'll be getting regular reps. And we'll talk more about number nines later. But I I think this is a very probable one as well. Well, uh, my three that I had were Mexico will get their quinto partido, so we can check off that one. Thank you, Graham. Uh, Josh Sargent will start for the U.S. as their number nine. No we can check that one off, way. too. So yes. I will go with my third option. Um, <laughs> I, I think this is, I guess, still specific enough. Um, I think it's going to be uh, uh, 16 groups of three. Uh, I think that's the format that's been suggested, and most likely other formats have been thrown out and discussed, and I don't think we have an official verdict on that one yet, but this feels to me like the first one that was suggested 
is the one that FIFA will go with. They're just waiting until they want to get around to announcing that. Uh, it doesn't seem like they're going to do a ton of work to figure out other options. I think it's going to be three uh, teams in each 16-team group. Or excuse me, 16 groups of three. There we go. And I think most people, at least in the United States, are going to be fine with it. And I think that's kind of what they're going for, is pulling in broader fans, even more fandom than they already have. And I think purists and... Football journalists will probably be very annoyed by the lack of balance and how you don't have simultaneous kickoffs. But I think a lot of people are going to enjoy, I'm not one of them, but I think a lot of people are going to enjoy having more teams in the knockout round because that probably sends 32 teams through to that first knockout round and it gives you more sort of uh, live and die games. I think that's what FIFA are trying to get to is is more games that you can't watch, that there has to be a winner that could go to penalties. They want that drama as well. Uh, They're not just USMNT fans. It's everybody who wants soccer drama. So I think that uh, is the most likely thing that FIFA will do. I think you're still right about that, Taylor. I just think that format is such a nightmare for for any team that is coming into a tournament trying to make a deep run with the expectation of making a deep run. Having only two group stage games, which you know your team could drop after the group stage, the variance is going to be even bigger with two games instead of three in the group stage. And then an extra round of knockouts. I mean, we're going to see. We will see. This is not you know conjecture. This will happen. There will be a big team that drops out in the round of 32. There will be multiple big teams that drop out far earlier than we would ever expect, which you know maybe is a good thing for FIFA. I, I can't help but think, though, for, for Fox, I've been thinking about this from a U.S. broadcast perspective, how upset they must be at the Final Four in the World Cup that Croatia and Morocco are in the last four. Like, they, they, they do not want that. It's a fun narrative for us, and, and we don't have any real stake in that. But, but broadcasters don't want that stuff. FIFA doesn't want that stuff. So maybe that will be enough to incentivize them to change. But yeah, I think, I think the appeal of having more knockout round games and just fitting all the extra teams in without really extra games, that is a really, really strong driver for FIFA. Yeah, I mean, if, if that is the motivation that they want more knockout games, which I think the logic on them being more exciting than group games is, is pretty sound, just make the whole tournament a knockout tournament. Agreed. It, like, that would that would be fun. I could get behind that. And, and, and I actually, um, I initially thought, oh, well, they're having the group stage so that they make sure the best teams get through. But Joe, you're right. I'm yeah. not sure that achieves that. No. And there, there will be bigger teams that drop earlier because of this new format so what so what does it achieve if you if you want to have more knockout games make every game a knockout game and just make it like the world cup used to be or like the fa cup is now or something like that you have them all do penalty shootouts against each other before they even play a game in the group Mm. and then if there are if they are level on points it's whoever win that penalty shootout gets to advance there you go there's let's let's make sure harry kane takes a penalty for yeah bad luck england Well, on that note, uh, let's take a quick break. Uh, Ryan is now weeping while handcuffed to the Chili's door, uh, or weeping even harder. Uh, we're going to take a quick break back with more questions in just a second. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
All right, we are back, still answering your listener questions here on the Total Soccer Show. Joe, coming to you for this one from Randy Morgan. Of the final four teams in this World Cup, which provides the best blueprint for the U.S. to follow to make a deep run? If that blueprint is clone Kylian Mbappe and then have yeah. him play for the U.S., I think that's a solid blueprint. But that one aside, I'm wondering where you are on this one. Yeah, I think Ernie Stewart's been building out that blueprint for a while yep. now. I'm not sure how much progress he's made. I mean, France is obviously the most ideal blueprint, even even without the tongue-in-cheek killing Mbappe cloning. The amount of talent they have, that keeps you relevant on the international level forever, right? I mean, that, that stuff is is the dream. I'm not sure how realistic it is, and so I, I came down to, of this four, of this set of four, the most realistic does feel like Morocco in some ways, and I don't think this is a perfect comparison, but they have talent. Yes, they have some superstars. Hakimi and Ziyech would, would start for the U.S. men's national team, no questions asked. But they're also far more than the sum of their parts. You know, we've seen talented players sort of emerge at this World Cup. We've seen Regregi turn this team into something more. The style of soccer, I think, is is difficult. I'm not sure how much this, this truly matters, but I, I'm not sure the U.S. will revert back to the ultra-defensive style that we might think of them playing in earlier eras in the way that Morocco play that style right now. I'm not, I'm not really sure how to, how to figure that in my head. But in terms of a team coming together to be something more than they are realistically by the time 2026 rolls around, the U.S. still aren't going to be on talent one of the four best teams in the world. And and Morocco aren't that now either, but they have tried to put as many things in their favor as they possibly can. And in that way, maybe if it's not even a perfect comparison, I think it's a a decent comparison for the U.S. to try to pull off a Morocco-esque run. Graham, your thoughts on this one? So I had the most realistic blueprint as, um, as yeah, cloning Kylian Mbappe. I saw the U.S. <laughs> Department of Energy yesterday made a breakthrough with Fusion Energy, and I thought to myself, is that really the best use of your time when the World Cup, is, the next World Cup, is three and a half years away? <laughs> well said, Graham. Wow. Yeah. Well said. No, I had Croatia actually as the most really? realistic blueprint. Yeah. So I, I wrote a piece about Croatia this week and how they continually produce World Cup class players. And the long story short, there is they are an anomaly. So there's not really a, a blueprint for the US to follow there in terms of the production of players, but in terms of how the, the national team has played at this World Cup in particular, you know they control matches through their, their their use of the ball, and and that's kind of what the US did in stretches, albeit not as successfully. And I can kind of see see some overlap. In that regard, between Croatia and the US, I did have Morocco also as my list as feasible. The the US could feasibly copy that blueprint. It's sort of a kind of Leicester City 2016 game plan infused with a bit of Red Bull football. And and I have said in the past that the USA, I think the squad could play Red Bull football. It's one of the reasons I think if Jesse Marsh is available for the next cycle, you go and get Jesse Marsh. But I, I just think the Morocco midfield is... So important to what they do. Yes, there's the, the the protection element of it, and I think the US could do that. The defence, looking beyond the Netherlands game, was pretty solid at, at this World Cup, so that element of things could work as well. But I think the US would really need to find a deep-lying playmaker to make Morocco's um, system work as well as theirs has at this World Cup. That is, that's the thing that's stopping the US from, from doing the Morocco game plan. In terms of France and Argentina, I, I don't really know how you, how you replicate that, just because... If you look at France, they're just so dependent on mm. having every world-class player in the world play at play for them. And then you could say similar, similar about Argentina, given how important uh, Messi is to them. So, yeah, I think Croatia, it's between Croatia and Morocco, and I lean towards Croatia just because I do see some kind of overlap between their current team right now and, and the U.S. team right now as well. 
I think Greg would like us to be Croatia. I think the U.S. has more success going deeper in a tournament playing like Morocco. Uh, I think it's worth noting Morocco I'd agree uh, with that, yeah. are, a, are, are a, a good team in Africa, but there are many, many, many good teams in African qualifying. And I think they can afford to be more defensive, more reactionary, more counterattacking because they have the personnel and the technical ability to do so while having the defensive discipline. I don't know if that works if they're in CONCACAF, if they're playing some of the teams the U.S. plays, where the U.S. has to be the team that takes the ball to the opposition that is trying to break down that bunker defense. I think it wouldn't really work for the U.S. in qualifying, but as you go up against teams that are desperately trying to win and potentially overextending themselves, it makes more sense. Until then, you have to be the team that picks their chances, keeps the ball, plays not quite dull football, but is okay with things not happening if it means that they're dictating the balance of play. I think that's how Croatia operate. So I think in that way, there are some similarities there. I think following the Croatia blueprint would maybe put the U.S. in a stronger position to play better football uh, and then maybe win in penalties. I guess they got to practice that. Uh, So I'm split between the two, uh, but I think Croatia is probably the more, like the way forward, whereas Morocco is probably the way to advance further, but not necessarily improve the program hmm. well, let's just build a Luka Modric robot I mean we, we talked that, about M- Mbappe already I don't understand what's holding <laughs> yeah. us back from at least building I mean, he's 37 right or 30 whatever he is surely we can build a 37 year old robot it can't be that hard I, I think we got that we got four years we, we right. got time to figure this out we 3d print somebody add some robot technology in there we're good to go done bang bang boom done so seven year old robot I think that's Peter Crouch <laughs> <laughs> just shrink him a bit I think we're there this is me applauding. Right, Help this him evade taxes some more, and then we'll be solid. We'll be solid. <laughs> yeah. uh, next question, Graham. That was such a good joke. I'm coming to you for it. Uh, from Richard Rolson. Bobby Warshaw recently asked the question on MLS Club and Country Podcast concerning the skill level of the USMNT players. He was commenting on how Burhalter's job as USMNT head coach should be judged. I would like to know how you judge the full 26-player roster for this year's World Cup team. Hindsight being 2020, I'm wondering, are there changes you would have made to the roster if you could go back in time? Did Greg Berhalter have any better options? Yeah, so that, that the answer to this one could go on for a while. Not because uh-huh. there's not because there's a there's many better options, just because I think at this time thoughts are still kind of swirling a little bit. Um but in hindsight, I think there was quite a lot of fat in that squad that could have been trimmed. I suspect Berhalter would have been quite happy with the usual twenty three man squad because there were players in that roster who just didn't have any opportunity to feature. Um Luca Della Torre. Probably shouldn't have been in in Qatar, not because he's not good enough, but because clearly his injury meant he was he was never in contention to to feature, and so it was a bit pointless to have him in that roster. That place could have been handed to Eric Williamson or or George Mihalovic, a no different player there, but nonetheless, um, it was kind of a wasted spot. And as I say, Berhalter, maybe he's not losing sleep over that. Maybe he's thinking, well, you know. That's just the way I'm going to run my squad. There's going to be with a 26-man squad, which is inflated for this World Cup. For anyone who doesn't know, he's just going to have players that he's not going to use. Maybe that's not such a problem. Um, another player that was a little bit confusing to me was, I know we all had our eye drawn by the Hadji Wright madness when the, the roster was announced, but had he not been picked, I think Shaq Moore's inclusion would have probably have been more of a talking point at that time. And he just didn't justify his place at all. And I would have rather had... Um, Reggie Cannon in there. No, he had a bad September window, but he'd been more involved with that squad generally, with that team generally. 
And I, I just actually, I probably would have rather have used a defensive spot for another striking option because I didn't really feel there was a need for three right backs in that t- in that squad. Once you factor in Dest and also DeAndre Yedlin in there as well, so I don't really know why Shaq Moore was in that squad. Also, even more confused that he featured, to be honest. The big one for me, and I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but nonetheless, it's how I feel. It was Jordan Peefock when the squad was announced, and it's still Jordan Peefock now that the, the World Cup is over. I know there was a lot of talk about Ricardo Pepe as well. I think that's slightly confusing. But I look at Peefock, and the US played more open play crosses than any other team in the group stage of this World Cup. Who were those crosses for? Um, we were told over and over again that Peefock didn't suit the approach. Well, to me, it kind of seemed like the approach very much had room for a striker with a, a strength in attacking crosses. That's what we've seen from Peefock. We've seen it this season for Union Berlin, particularly near post crosses as well, which God knows the USA played enough of those through Christian Pulisic, um, whether by design or not, <laughs> at this World Cup. So having PFOC in there was just a no-brainer for me. And I, and I said last week that Berhalter mismanaged the number nine pool, and that is probably the biggest criticism. We've covered Berhalter. I, I'm, I'm not necessarily Berhalter out. I think there's a decision to be made there. But I do think the way he managed that number nine pool was, was yeah. pretty poor and PFOC should have been there. Yeah, I think PFOC would have added value to this team. To, to answer Richard's question about how I evaluate a 26-man World Cup squad, the answer is I don't. I pretty much just evaluate the players who played, evaluate the players who played, and then evaluate the coach for the rest, which I think, Graham, is, is where you've gotten us to here. That's just my, my quick and dirty answer to Richard's question. Having PFOC would have been valuable. I, I don't think bringing four number nines would have ever been necessary. I mean, they're just not good enough to warrant bringing four of them to a World Cup. So I think you, you add PFOC, you drop somebody else, and then the only other area that, and this is the one that I think about more, actually far more than the number nine spot, is central midfield. I think the U.S. would have been better suited and better off in this tournament for having someone like Georgie Mihailovic or Eric Williamson or even Keaton Parks. Graham, you mentioned some of those players already, so I don't need to do much more here. But I think that's like the, the single biggest personnel flaw that I think about with Berhalter, or just the thing that I, I disagree with him about at least based off of the information I have, which is from my couch versus, you know, doing the coaching in person. So we're not working off the same data set here. But Eric Williamson, I think, is a better player than someone like uh, Luca De La Torre, who's not fit, right? I mean, at least you want to bring bodies in that can play. And I think evaluating Williamson differently and integrating him deeper into this team other than the 2021 Gold Cup would have been useful. Uh, and, and you can say the same about getting Keaton Parks action or, or getting, you know, Georgie action or whatever that looks like. But that's really my only gripe. I think it showed. I think the U.S.'s lack of energy in midfield really showed. Yeah. And it, and it changed the game against uh, the Netherlands in a, in a much more drastic way than even bringing someone like PFOC to maybe at home a hopeful cross would have done. Not that we have to compare those things because we don't. It doesn't matter at this point. But yeah, you can make some, some arguments about the number nine spot. But mostly for me, it comes down to the midfield group and energy in that group. The, the thing about De La Torre is... Delatory through qualifying actually had an important role to play to prevent the sort of thing you're talking about, Joe, there, where yeah. the, the midfield, the MMA midfield is getting worn out and run into the ground. So had it been someone like Christian Roldan, who was who was injured, you could maybe make an argument that, okay, he is he's carrying injuries, but he's not likely to feature anyway. He doesn't have much of an important role to play. He's he's maybe in that extra three um, player bracket that I'm talking about between 23 and 26 where Berhalter's thinking well it's not going to feature much anyway but De La Torre actually had a role to play in this squad and so he needed to be replaced if he's not able to feature someone needs to do that role and Berhalter just d- could just complete didn't make that decision at all and I think that did harm the midfield in the end 
I think uh, you you all have covered the bases really well. I would just add that I think if you looked at that roster, even before Berhalter announced it, and I asked you, what are the areas of concern, we would have said, who's going to start at number nine? Who are the options at number nine? Uh, is Who are your starting center backs? Is there enough center back depth? And, and then central midfield depth. Do we have people who can come in if Tyler Adams picks up an injury or needs a break or Weston McKinney or Eunice Musa? I think those would have been the three areas of concern. And they were, and they still are. And and I think the names we're talking about maybe make a difference. Maybe Jordan Pifak would have done something different. Maybe Ricardo Pepe would have done something different. Maybe Eric Williamson. But that's also not a name necessarily that we were shocked wasn't included or really frustrated. And and I think it speaks to the lack of options combined with some of the injuries. And, and I get where Bobby is then coming from with this question of we have these really high expectations based on – uh, the best players that are there and how strong our best players are. I've made this point before. I'll make it again. It reminds me of the CONCACAF Champions League and why MLS teams are limited, that you don't have enough of that top-end talent aside from maybe your top three or five guys or even your starting 11. But then the depth after that isn't there. There isn't the money for it or hasn't been historically. And I think the U.S. is held to a standard by its potential starting 11. But when you look at the guys who could like if you had to fl- flip them entirely, if the entire starting 11 got hurt in a game and who came in, the expectations are very different for those guys. And so I think in that way, it's fair to look at, at some of his roster selections critically. But I think it's also fair to judge this team as what they are, which is a good team, not yet a great team. Uh, bring on 2026 when when that can be the case. Uh, let's keep it going. Joe, coming to you for the next one from Ira Jersey. Do you think the lack of development of U.S. domestic strikers might be a product of how U.S. clubs operate? I had not thought about this. This is a fascinating question. Uh, most MLS and USL clubs seem to go outside the U.S. for strikers and other attacking players, which pushes <laughs> solid young domestic attackers to backup roles. Could this be an issue for our number nine challenge? If so, is there a solution? Yes, I do think it's part of it. I think it's a really interesting question from Ira. I, I agree with you, Taylor. This is a fascinating one. I, I think this is a weird cart horse thing, right? Whether the cart is before the horse or not. Do clubs go outside the U.S. for strikers because the U.S. doesn't develop good strikers? Or does clubs going outside the U.S. for strikers make it impossible for the good U.S. strikers to rise to the top? And as a result, it looks like the U.S. doesn't develop any good strikers. I think, honestly, maybe it's not a cart horse thing because I think both of those things could be true. I think it it could be that clubs go outside the U.S. for, for quality strikers because the U.S. doesn't have them. I think it could also be true that clubs go outside the U.S. for strikers, making it make, makes it very difficult for the best ones in the U.S. youth pool to rise to the top and to play here. I think those things can both be accurate, but I, I also think there's another level to this, and this is what Graham says all the time when we talk about number nines for the U.S., is it's just really hard to develop an elite striker, yeah. right? I mean, there's what, like 10, 8, 10 of them in the world right now? That It's nothing. There, there is... There are no good strikers in the world relative to the population. Like the percentage is infinitesimally small. It is it is microscopic. They just don't exist, right? There are eight or ten of them in the entire world population. It is so difficult to develop that player. It's easier to develop a deep line playmaker. It's easier to develop a quality ball playing center back. And those things are really hard to do. So it is incredibly difficult to find a pure goal scorer. The U.S. has developed Josh Sargent, who went to Germany. He's trying to rebound. He was an elite youth prospect. They developed Ricardo Pepe, who had a good season with Dallas and then left for a bad situation in Germany. Players can go, right? Players can go. The best U.S. youth prospects at the number nine spot can go. They can stay. They can play the U.S. They can they can leave and go play somewhere else. It doesn't matter. It's just really unlikely that any of those people are ever going to become 
the best of the best. Now, one, one more beat on Ira's actual question and, and thought before I, I flip it to Graham, if he has anything to add here, is I, I do think clubs in the United States would almost always rather look outside of the club to acquire players than inside. I think that is still maybe this sort of imposter syndrome, and maybe there is some truth to the fact that we, you know, we can't develop players of certain profiles. We've talked about that before. I do think there is some accuracy to that. If you're looking for a deep-lying playmaker, I mean, there just aren't a lot of them out there in, in the U.S. that are American. So there is that difficulty. At the same time, I think there is just a much greater appeal to making these flashy foreign signings than there is to going out and, and doing an FC Cincinnati and signing Brandon Vasquez, coaching him up, letting him play, letting him find a stable environment. There are more Brandon Vasquez's out there. I think I believe that pretty strongly, and teams just don't really want to find them. Now, again, Brandon Vasquez is not Robert Lewandowski, and he will never be. So there, there are levels to this, right? I'm sure there are more fringe international level strikers that are not being played or, or are not being given uh, the time of day because clubs want to value foreign talents and do value foreign talents higher because it's more fun. Uh, but at the same time, Brandon Vasquez is not Erling Holland. So that that I don't know. I read, this question made me think. I don't have a full mm-hmm. like thesis statement on this, but hopefully there was something in there that gets at, at what you're asking about. Uh, Graham, I'll, I'll jump in uh, j- just because I feel like this this is the development side of things can probably be a little bit uh, foreign, literally and figuratively. Uh, two things I think Joe uh, said there. The first one uh, with the appeal of bringing in a- an outside striker, Brandon Vasquez next season could be leading the Golden Boot race when it comes to All Star voting. But people are still going to be more excited about Lionel Messi playing in the league, and he's oh, not a striker. Yeah. But I think clubs know that. They know that the big-name goal scorer who's going to get highlight reel clips on SportsCenter and pull in a broader base of fans is always going to appeal. I think the only times U.S. goal scorers have made that type of splash is when they're established number nines for the U.S., and then they're coming back to the league victorious or not, Josie Altidore, chief among them, Clinton Dempsey, even coming back to the league. Those are players who are sort of ever present fixtures in the USMNT. And thus they, they can create that little bit of a splash. And so the U S doesn't really have that short of developing the players. And, and to your point, Joe, like let's look at Josh Sargent for a moment and let's look at Haji Wright. Those are two guys who, to my knowledge, chose not to sign deals with MLS teams to not go with their academy structure and then play with an MLS reserve team or even an MLS team at 16 or 17. They uh, actively avoided that. In Haji Wright's case, he played for the Cosmos before making a move. And the reason at the time was because there was less clarity on how you make the jump from MLS to a European league. MLS teams were uh, oftentimes not wanting to sell their players. They held on to them a little bit longer. They wanted uh, better valuations or more money. That's still the case to some extent, but both of those guys felt like it was a better opportunity to not go with MLS, to just bide their time and then make that jump. And I I feel like that has changed. I feel like MLS has changed the model. They're they're more inclined to sell players at a younger age, uh, ideally for more money. Uh, And Ricardo Pepe is a prime example of that. that he uh, comes through Dallas, develops with their uh, uh, Texas team. I forget what North the, Texas uh, SC. Thank yes. you. Watching him play against the kickers was eye opening. Uh, but he then makes the first team. He's scoring goals, and then he makes that jump. I don't know how likely that would have been a few seasons before that. And so, in that way, to the point of Iris' question. There are already things being done that I think make it more likely that we'll get number nines developing in the United States. I still think part of it is that youth teams tend to put their biggest, fastest kid up top and let him score a bunch of goals until he's 14 or 15. And then suddenly he's not the biggest and fastest and hasn't developed at all technically. Yeah. And then that kid stops playing. 
And then it's, well, who can do the, the, the most serviceable job of a number nine? And I don't think we get nearly as many kids sticking to that position, but developing into being sort of well-rounded players. And I think that's part of it, too. So I guess improving the development, improving the coaching and the way that we look at, at, at youth players, but then also, I think, facilitating their moves abroad and facilitating their development into the first team, that can only be positive as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good question, isn't it? You know, I hadn't really considered this until now. Um, I think it's certainly true that MLS clubs weight their budget towards the attacking position, which means there's greater competition. You guys have already already covered that. Um, you know, greater competition for homegrown strikers to break through. I, I just keep coming back to, and Joe knows me very well, I'm very predictable on this subject. And you're like, right, Graham, to be clear. You're if, entirely right about this. Yeah, so if you look at like England, who have one of the best... Now, anyway, they have one of the best youth development programs. You look at their national team, they're stacked for options. Harry Kane, yeah, okay. Marcus Rashford, even though he plays on the left wing a lot of the time. Who's the other top-class English striker in, in the, at the top of the Premier League Callum right Wilson. Now? <laughs> well, yeah, Callum Wilson. I, I quite like Callum Wilson, but he's not, you know, he's not an elite-level goal scorer. You look at, like... Spain, for example, Real Madrid and Barcelona. Real Madrid have, you know, a Brazilian and a Frenchman as their front two. Then you go to Barcelona. They've got a Polish striker as, 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 as their number nine at the moment. So they are just such a rare breed, world class strikers. I think the US does a decent job in terms of, of MLS anyway, does a decent job of, of, of bringing through strikers. If you look at the top 10 goal scorers from the regular season last year in MLS, three of them are eligible to play for the US, Vazquez, uh, Jesus Ferreira and Jeremy Abobase. And then I looked at the, the U20 squad and the latest U20 squad and, and, and four of the five forwards included in that last squad play for MLS clubs. And then the other one was Kevin Paredes, who, who obviously came through uh, DC United. So I do think the, the, the issues that MLS clubs are maybe or the US is experiencing with maybe not having many or any world-class strikers coming through its domestic league is an issue that is shared by pretty much every footballing nation on earth even the one even the elite level ones even spain and england and germany they still have those those same problems so it's not something that i feel like it's not an anomaly that the u.s isn't producing those players all right uh we've got more questions about number nines later on right now let's take a quick break and back with some more listener questions in just a second this episode is supported by fx's welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be 
offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Joe, a question from you from Guy Yedwab. Is there a coach in the women's game who would be suited for the U.S. men's national team job? Jill Ellis uh, is the one that was asked several times by Guy, but many other people who sent in questions asked about Jill Ellis coaching the U.S. MNT. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I would say no to Jill Ellis because mm-hmm. I think she's kind of moved on at this point. She's she's doing more of a businessy kind of role with San Diego Wave in the NWSL. And I think she's good at a lot of things on the coaching side. I'm not sure she is the tactician that I would like to see sort of take control of the U.S. and and take them to that next level. I'm not sure she represents a meaningful improvement on that front. Again, done a lot of really incredible things in her career, but still not who I would pick. I do think there are coaches in the women's game who would be very interesting choices for the U.S. And, and Graham, I think we might have the same short list here. So I'll, I'll touch on them. <laughs> is it a short list of two? It is a short list of two. And <laughs> uh, one of their initials is E-H and the other one is S-W. So yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll go quickly and then you can fill in behind because I know, I know we got the same stuff to say. Emma Hayes is always one that I come back to. Even from hearing her speak right and do analysis at different times, she has so many phenomenal insights about the game. And it's not just like these theoretical tactical ideas either. She wins titles. She's won a bunch with Chelsea in uh, in England. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to appreciate Emma Hayes as a manager, even you know, listen to what her players say about her as being this really almost wholly positive influence on their lives. Emma Hayes is, is someone that I am just fascinated by from a managerial perspective. And the other one is Serena Wiegmann, who won the Women's Euros with the Dutch in 2017, was second in the World Cup with the Netherlands in 2019, losing to the U.S., won the Euros in, in 2022 with England, beat the U.S. recently with England in not wholly convincing fashion, but they were the better team on the day and played the better soccer. Uh, Serena Wiegmann is, is the real deal. I know Michael Cox wrote an article for The Athletic about, you know, 
maybe this is the Gareth Southgate replacement. And I, I understand that that was met with a lot of criticism from people who don't really think about this stuff and think that, you know, these, these crossovers don't happen. One thing that Michael Cox mentioned in that article, though, was John Herdman, who has done this switch, right? He's gone from the women's side to the men's side. We've talked about that before. I think Vigman is a phenomenal manager who will do a good job with whatever her next step is. I doubt that she's in any hurry to get out of this England job because they are gunning for that World Cup trophy and maybe should be the favorites. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with everything that Joe says. Serena Wiegmann, um, if she wants to move into the men's game, I think the opportunity will be there for her at some point. I also agree with Joe that she's not in a rush right now because that World Cup next year is is a very achievable target for this England team. And it would be obviously the biggest achievement of, of her career so far. But after that, I would personally, just because I, you know, the precedent that John Herdman has set with Canada is a really exciting one. I want to see someone else walk the, the same path. I would like to see a female coach do it at, at some point. And Serena Wiegmann, it feels like she is the most feasible option to do it, probably in my entire lifetime, to, to do it. Not just to go into the men's game, but to go into a, a, a high-profile men's football job. The composure she has, the the calmness that she brings to the team, the, the teams that she coaches, the way that she just has a, a full grasp of the qualities and the, and even the weaknesses of her players. We saw that at the Euros um, this year where she knows exactly what players to put on at certain... Her in-game management, we talk about Greg Berhalter, that's one of the, his biggest weaknesses is his, his in-game management. You certainly can't say that about Serena Wiegmann, the number of times that England were able to change that match during the Euros. So I, I think there would surely be someone at the English FA who would put her name forward if Southgate were to leave. I think she very much deserves to be put forward for that job. And then, yeah, Emma Hayes, she's just so tactically sharp. I don't know if either of these coaches are kind of on the US radar because they don't have that sort of um, that background with American soccer. Maybe it would need someone to come through the NWSL to get the, the US men's national team job that way. But their credentials in general are, are clear to see, and I would like to see both of them at the men's in the men's game at some point. Uh, yeah, just ditto everything you all have said. I'll just add that if we have like a a Space Jam situation in which aliens come to the planet and say we're playing your best eleven, uh, there are certain people that I have the most faith in to manage that team to get a result. Uh, uh, Jurgen Klopp, uh, Pep Guardiola, Carlo Ancelotti would be on there. Gasparini as well. Serena Wiegmann would be on there. I have a ton of faith in her as a manager. I think she's proven her ability with the Dutch, with England. Uh, Thus far, it feels like she's handled every obstacle, handled it well, handled the tactical side, the ego side, the personnel side, whatever it may be. So she would be uh, my nomination uh, if we were going to go that route. And I agree with you, Joe. I don't think Jill Jill Ellis... Uh, works as well for the reasons you listed, but also because when she was the the head coach of the U.S. women, there were consistent questions about tactics and how she was employing people and formations and starting 11s. And I think there's a certain flexibility when it comes to the U.S. women's national team with the talent they have at their disposal, that it's about sort of managing that talent and finding a way to put your best team out there with so many uh, great players. With the U.S. men, it's a slightly different challenge in that way. So I'm not sure that would be one for Jill Ellis, but Serena Wiegmann has has proven herself capable of handling different challenges in different ways. So yeah, she would be my answer. Uh, well done, fellas. Well answered. Graham, uh, coming back to you from Michael Pearsall. Could a country decline an automatic bid for the World Cup if they still wanted to have meaningful qualifying matches? Michael emphasizes he's not saying this is a good idea, just asking if it's possible. Yeah, so I'll be completely honest. I couldn't find a definitive answer to, mm-hmm. to this uh, to this question. I think part of the problem is I don't know why, as Michael references, I don't know why any country would 
possibly pass up a free ticket to a yeah. to a World Cup. Imagine if that imagine if that went wrong. If you're hosting a World yeah. Cup but you're not you're not at it. And I was trying to think why FIFA in in absence of a definitive answer, it's not something I could find and you know, I went through the bid process from FIFA. There's some stuff on their website about what you, you need to, to, to bid for a World Cup. I couldn't find anything in that. And I was trying to think why they wouldn't permit it. And I guess there's a commercial aspect to it. So ticket sales would probably take a hit if the host nation mm-hmm. isn't participating. You wouldn't have the traditional curtain raising match involving the, the host nation. I don't think there would be the same level of activation on the ground. There wouldn't be the same engagement in the tournament. So maybe FIFA wouldn't allow it because if there's one thing they care about, it's their bottom line. And I think not having a host nation at their own World Cup would affect that ultimately. Yeah, I, I can see somebody asking uh, Gianni Infantino, like, hey, can we can we go back into qualifying and make sure that we get to play some games? And him just laughing and laughing and then pausing and saying, oh, you're serious? Uh, no, no, <laughs> you, you're not doing that. Absolutely not. We want you there. Uh, stop trying to hurt our money. Uh, Joe, what do you make of this one? Yeah, I I just don't know why someone would do this. I guess I I really struggled to look past that. Yeah. The risks are too high. I know that maybe they're not they're not that high to miss the World Cup, but they're I mean they're not zero, and I don't think you can afford to take that risk, even at the cost of losing out on some of those competitive games. So no, I mean I, I agree with a lot of what you all have said. My only thing is it's a fun thought experiment, and it does again underline the importance of playing meaningful games. Like I would love to see the U.S. embed themselves in another confederations qualifying you know in the same way that Qatar did for UEFA I think that was a really good idea I think Qatar in a lot of ways set the blueprint and it's not a good thing to say about it about Qatar but I think on the soccer side they they approached a lot of things in a very wise way even if it all came crumbling down at the World Cup as we all watched them on on the biggest stage possible I do think there is some wisdom in trying to get as many of those games as possible I hope the U.S. does that but no, I, I couldn't find for sure either if you can skip out on that auto bid, and I, I don't think that will ever happen. I'm kind of into the idea of the U.S. going the Qatar route and doing UEFA qualifying instead. Instead, instead of like still doing CONCACAF qualifying but just not having it matter, saying, nope, we're going to go play uh, in UEFA qualifying and get some games there. Uh, mm. I say that in jest, but I'm also kind of serious. I think that could be great, especially because then it could open up the possibility the U.S. plays Scotland and we get to talk trash to Graham. I like it. I like it a lot. More, more trash. Um, I was actually just thinking the the Euros last year. Or the, when was that? Yeah, last year the men's Euros. Um, that was obviously held across mm-hmm. Europe, and so that I think is maybe the only time where you haven't had the host nations automatically qualify. And in my mind. I sometimes forget that because Scotland did qualify for that tournament. We were one of the host nations, but we had to go through the process. You know, we could very, uh, it was likely, maybe even, that we would be looking at that tournament being hosted in Scotland without us being part of it. Um, So I'm glad that didn't happen. But maybe that that is a precedent of um, Michael's question, you know, actually Mm -hmm. happening in reality. So we shall see. Uh, we'll see if the U.S. goes that route. If they do, I'm sure everybody will be totally fine with them turning out, turning up a, or giving up an automatic spot to have to find their way through qualifying. Please don't do that, guys. My heart can't handle it. Uh, <laughs> final question. Uh, Joe, coming to you from James Perez. Do you think some players prefer club over country and vice versa? Uh, James suggests that Pulisic seems to prefer playing for his country, whereas Mohamed Salah seems to pl- uh, prefer playing for his club. Yeah, so I think I think there are situations where this is the case. Absolutely, players are going to bond with different players. You might have your friends on the national team, and you might you know struggle to connect with people on your club team. Some players might like the grind of club soccer, that you know everyday environment. Others might like 
the excitement of the international game. I think it is circumstantial in a lot of different ways. There, there was also a, a situational playing time part of this as well. Yunus Musa was the player that came to mind for me. Not that I know if he prefers club or, or country, Valencia or the U.S. men's national team, but I can imagine that Musa last season playing out on the right wing and, and sort of not playing for a, a great Valencia team that plays a style that suits him. I can imagine he really enjoyed coming to U.S. camps to play as a number eight, right? I mean, that's got to be fun and liberating to play with players that, you know, you enjoy and playing in a role you enjoy. I think that's a, a very legitimate thing to appreciate. And then I think about Serginho Dest, maybe. And again, I don't know club versus country for him. I, I couldn't find stuff for any of the current U.S. national team players. But, I mean, not playing for Barcelona really at all over the last, you know, ever, basically. He surely loved coming into play for the U.S. where he's all of a sudden the, the sauciest player on the field. He's not that of Barcelona, and he, he couldn't even get on the field in the first place. He wants to cut inside on his left foot and score that ridiculous goal against Costa Rica in World Cup qualifying. That stuff's fun. That's why he likes playing soccer. He was getting to play soccer and have fun with the national team, much less so with Barcelona. So, yeah, I think there are absolutely cases where players are going to prefer one environment over the other. I think it's it's down to the individual. Yeah, I, I, th- I think most, I mean, sweeping generalization here, but I think most players probably prefer club over country obviously there are some good national team environments and joe you kind of lay things out well there england for example is a much healthier environment now than it's been in the past so there's probably some players in there who prefer being with england than with their club team but at club level you have familiarity you know you you might also get used in a more effective way in the pitch because of the extra time club coaches have to work out your strengths and weaknesses as a player there's more of a routine at club level it's it's your day-to-day if you're a player and I, and I think back to an interview I watched um it was Gary Neville talking to Paul Scholes and Paul Scholes obviously retired from England duty very young in his career and basically he was saying he, he didn't like basically uh, spending a lot of time away from his his family he didn't like going to World Cup and spending five to six weeks or a month or whatever in hotels and having all that downtime and so I think there's quite a lot of just because it is your day-to-day, I think a lot of players prefer club over country. Um, some examples, so from the Scotland point of view, Super John McGinn, for example, he always plays better for Scotland and Aston Villa. He always seems to enjoy himself more for, for the national team. I think Aston Villa has kind of weighed him down the last year or so. And then on the flip side, just reading the body language and performances and also quotes and everything like that, and I actually think he might have admitted it at some point, which got him a little bit of heat over here in Scotland, but Andy Robertson is much happier at Liverpool than he is in in the Scotland setup. So I think it largely depends on the individual player, but the sport is kind of set up for the the club game to harness players, I think, more fully than is the case in in the international game. This is another really interesting one because I disagreed with you all when you both started talking. I think I now agree because uh, my original argument was that I think the way most modern clubs operate, it's it's hard to have like true loyalty to a club if you're a player. And so I think players oftentimes end up playing for themselves and for their teammates and then maybe to a lesser extent the supporters. But I think if you're like in the drudges of January trying to grind your way to a result, I think you're playing for the people around you, not necessarily for the badge, not necessarily for the history of that club. Whereas if you're playing for your national team, I can envision there being more collective buy-in, everybody being united behind playing for the country and people back home watching and you want to do them proud. And I can see how there would be more buy-in, more enthusiasm, just that little bit extra energy, that little bit extra willingness to work for the national team. And then I realized, as you all are talking, that it's very important to recognize when this question is being asked. 
and I'm answering it while we are still in the midst of a World Cup. Hmm. If you asked me this question just before those friendlies against Japan and Saudi Arabia for the USMNT, I think I'm giving you a different answer. Because I think when you're around major competitions, I think players would always prefer to be playing at a World Cup. I think a World Cup is the biggest competition there is, even if the Champions League is more money uh, and probably better soccer overall. I still think the World Cup is that sort of major, major competition everybody wants to be a part of. I don't know if that's the case for the Nations League and for the Gold Cup and for other regional competitions, certainly not for friendlies. So I think it's really dependent on when that question is asked. And I think you're right. The majority of the time, it is probably preferable to play just for your club than opposed for a club and country. Yeah, and I think there's just such a huge tie like emotionally to being in an environment so consistently. You're going to get invested, even if even if you're not excited about it coming in, even if it's not the move you wanted you will naturally attach yourself to those people, even if you have almost nothing in common with them. You have something in common. You're fighting every single day, every single weekend to try. I know this sounds so cliche, but I, I think it's true. You're fighting to achieve some sort of common goal, and there is like this undeniable appeal to that. So again, I don't know what I would feel in this situation. I'd hope that there are enjoyable parts about both of these environments, but I think there's just something so human about you know, being alongside another group of people and, and fighting for something, whatever that goal yeah. is for whatever club you're in, I think there is like this real deep tie to that. It's not a conundrum that I have personally experienced. Hmm, what do I prefer playing for? My club in a World Cup or, uh, or, 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 or sorry, my country in a World Cup or my club? Yeah, I've not been asked that personal question before which do you well now you're being asked Graham, which do you prefer from your from your vast experience of both which well, zippy do you want to wear a media game for which Sterling Albion once so yeah which zippy yeah I'll go for club zippies Joe there it is have sponsors on those there it is Joe Lowry not afraid to hold people's feet to the fire to get the answers that he wants no Graham, I'm not no I'm not you went club zippy is that correct yeah because I'm a nerd and I like it when they have a wee sponsor on there and you don't get that. Graham wants to be a corporate chill. That's, yeah, that's what I'm seriously. hearing. Seriously. <laughs> Graham went against the entire thesis of my argument. Thank you for that, Graham. Well done. Uh, yeah, yeah. Graham is the PSG player who's hyped to, pl- to play for PSG in less so Scotland. <laughs> that's good to know. That's good to know. Yeah. On that Ooh, note, fly Emirates. Ooh, nice. <laughs> is, that, is that who Graham's going to be? Graham's just going to speak in corporate branding st- statements? <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Yeah, off the records, corporate summits that get leaked. Oh, oh okay. Full circle. There it is. The athletic. Oh. Graham brought it back. Oh. Uh, we will call this one a day, I think. We've got game uh, a game to review tomorrow, uh, so we'll be back for that. We've got another one Wednesday, and then we've got a World Cup final to preview because that is coming soon. We're coming to the end of the World Cup, gentlemen. It feels weird. Uh, luckily, we have soccer like nine hours after the final, so we can just jump right <laughs> back into it. Uh, since both of you would prefer club over country, uh, good news. You get... You you get to get back to covering club soccer uh, pretty quickly. But for now, Joe Lowry, thank you for taking the time to answer a bunch of very good questions today. Taylor, right back at you. Thank you. Graham, the same to you. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. And listeners, thank you for asking those questions and for listening to us once again. We'll talk to you all again very soon. 